Well, good day. It's good to be together. I don't know what you're expecting when you walked into church today. Maybe you're expecting to encounter God. Maybe expecting to share fellowship, relationship with others. Maybe to sing God's praise, His glory. Maybe to hear Him speak into your life from His Word. Whatever you were expecting, my hunch is you weren't expecting to hear about how a left-handed man killed a very fat man in gruesome detail. Uh, We're told the sword went so far in that the fat closed over. It was gone. Uh, We're told that when the fat king was stabbed, he experienced an involuntary discharge of his bowels. You know what that means. Uh, We're told the king's attendants waited nervously outside, thinking, he's relieving himself. He's in the bathroom. Uh, And so they waited so long until until they were embarrassed. I think it's worth saying, though, uh, that all of us are going to have kind of slightly different emotional responses to this story. Some are going to think, it's hilarious. It's a great story. Um, Others might think that it's actually quite gross, not funny at all. Uh, Some will find it shameful, perhaps even irreverent, you know, thinking like, does something like this belong in church, let alone God's Bible? Uh, Others will find it embarrassing, confronting, maybe a little kind of violent and upsetting. But here's the question, why? Why? Why do we have this story told in this particular way with these particular details? Uh, The biblical authors never waste their words. Nothing is there uh, by accident. Everything is carefully considered. Uh, And what's more, the author here didn't need to include all these details. The author's actually very fine with skipping over details in stories. If you just have a look at that uh, passage that came at the start about uh, Othniel, Uh, he's the first judge of Israel, and in many ways, Othniel was the textbook judge. Uh, So if you remember last week, there was like the older generation of Israel, they were faithful, they obeyed, new generation, they wandered. Othniel's part of the older generation, faithful, obeyed, tick, good guy. Uh, Othniel is also from the tribe of Judah, which from back in chapter 1, we know Judah was the most successful, the most faithful tribe. He's from there. Tick, good guy. Uh, And if you look through the story of Othniel, you'll find those seven stages of the cycle that Tim showed us last week. Those stages aren't as obvious in later stories, but here they are, nice and clear. Textbook, tick. Uh, Othniel is the benchmark judge. But notice that the author gives us almost no detail about him. There's no dialogue, there's no dramatization, no development. It's like the author isn't all that interested in Othniel. Uh, Poor old Shamgar down in verse 1. We didn't actually read it, which I think is kind of appropriate because he only gets one verse. Uh, He's over and done with very quickly. He's the third judge. In between Othniel and Shamgar, we have the story of Ehud. Uh, It has detailed references to fat, poo, and the toilet. Why? 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 Why is it there? Um, I think the key to unlocking, making sense of this passage is to see that it's a satire. Uh, Satire is a particular genre, a kind of literature. It's got a specific set of features, specific set of aims. Uh, It's been around for a long time. The Romans loved it. Uh, And the aim of a satire is to expose something to expose it through things like parody, uh, ridicule, mockery, whether it's exposing deception, hypocrisy, or really anything else. 
Uh, so let me give you some examples. Shrek. Uh, Shrek's perhaps a pretty kind of light and friendly satire. Uh, but what it does is it takes the fairy tale genre where we expect certain things, but then it kind of flips everything in unexpected ways. Uh, that's parody. Or think about Animal Farm by George Orwell. Um, at one level, it's a story about a bunch of animals who take over and run a farm. It's like a kid's story. But push deeper and you'll find a satirical critique of Stalinist communism. Um, or think about the Babylon Bee or something like the Onion. They use satire to expose social issues through ridicule, mockery. That's satire. And the passage we have in front of us has all the marks of a satire. It's got parody, it's got irony, it's got word plays and double meanings going on. Uh, but one of the classic tools of satire is humour. Uh, and the humour in our passage is perhaps kind of one of the confusing, maybe confronting things. Because some people will find it funny, some people won't. Um, but I think reading this passage as a satire can actually help us. Uh, because in satire, uh, humour always has a purpose. In, a, in like a comedy, the goal is to make you laugh. But in satire, the humour is there to make you think. Um, one writer on satire says this, The rules of satire are such that it must do more than make you laugh. No matter how amusing it is, it doesn't count unless you find yourself wincing a little even as you chuckle. I think that's true for our passage. And so in the end, it doesn't matter whether you find this passage funny or not. The important thing is you understand what it's trying to achieve. Uh, if you read this story as nothing more than an entertaining story, you'll miss the point. Um, but if you don't see the humour and the satire, you'll also miss the point. Uh, the important thing is to get the message right. So, uh, for the first part of our time together, what we're going to do is we're just going to work through the story. Uh, I want to show you kind of how it works, the satire, the humour. That'll take us a little while. Uh, and we'll ask, you know, what's being critiqued? What's being exposed here in this satire? Um, but as we'll see, uh, this story, it's not just a satire. It's also a story of salvation. Uh, and so, we'll finish by thinking about what this passage says about salvation and God's saviour. Story, satire, salvation. Uh, just before we jump in, I think it's worth saying something briefly, briefly about uh, translating humour. You might be aware that our Old Testaments uh, are a translation of Hebrew. Uh, but one of the hardest things to translate in any language is humour. Uh, that's because uh, humour often uses like word plays, double meanings, words that sound like other words. Um, and our English translations are excellent. Um, but there are a few little moments in this passage where I think the humour uh, is just kind of lost in translation. So, I don't want anyone to think that you need to know Hebrew to understand the Bible. Uh, otherwise, uh, we're all uh, at a loss. Um, what I might try and do is just draw out a few little details and maybe just kind of pull them to the surface. So, let's jump in. Let's have a look at this story. Work out what's going on. Uh, the story of Ehud starts in verse 12. We're told, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we're going to see that phrase again and again throughout the book. Um, as we read it, though, I want to encourage us, don't become desensitized. 
don't gloss over it as we read it again. Uh, I think there's a, a couple of important lessons there. Uh, the first is that sin and evil is very often routine. It's very often boring. Did you notice they did the same thing again? Uh, sin is often portrayed in our world as being fun, exciting. Um, but the reality of sin is that it often involves going back to do the same thing again and again, uh, like an addiction. The author of Proverbs says, like a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to their folly. Uh, another thing we see about uh, sin and evil here is that it very often comes after God has shown peace and mercy. Um, did you notice it was after a time of peace under Othniel that they again did evil? That's uh, very often when we experience God's mercy, God's blessing in our lives, we let down our guard and the devil comes to strike with temptation. Uh, but notice what happens as a result of their sin, uh, verse 12. Because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Uh, we're told how Eglon, he came and he attacked Israel, uh, in particular the city of the Palms, a.k.a. Jericho. Um, but before I introduce you to Eglon, um, just notice that it was uh, the Lord who gave Eglon power. The ESV says the Lord strengthened him. Uh, I think that's important because it says that behind these events, there were two different plans going on. Um, at one level, there was the very natural plan of Eglon to just come and conquer a nearby nation. But above and behind the plans of Eglon were the plans of God. Um, and at every point, God was bringing about his purposes. Uh, and so, that should have given Israel comfort, knowing that God is always working out his purposes. But it should have also made them reflect and ask, why has this trouble come? Uh, what might God be revealing to us? But let's come and have a think about Eglon. Uh, we've already been told he's the king of Moab. That's kind of a nearby nation on the east of Israel. But in verse 17, we're told something very unusual. Verse 17, Eglon was a very fat man. It's unusual because the biblical authors don't usually give us that kind of detail. And so we need to ask, why give us this detail here? Um, our first reaction uh, might be to think that the author is making fun of Eglon for being fat. Um, I think that actually makes the mistake of taking like a modern understanding of body image and then reading it back into the Bible. Um, in the ancient world, fatness was actually associated with power and privilege because being fat meant two things. It meant you had enough money to buy expensive fatty foods and it meant you weren't out working in the fields, burning off all those calories. Uh, and so we shouldn't think um, fat being like oppressed minority body shaming we should think power, privilege. Uh, that's Eglon. But I think there's actually more going on because the word fat there, it's not the normal Hebrew word for fat. It's very unusual. And it means something a little bit more like being uh, meaty. Uh, it's only ever used to describe animals, usually. Uh, mostly animals, rarely humans. And so the author's saying Eglon was a very 
meaty man. Um, but here's where we get into the satire, because in Hebrew, the name Eglon sounds like the word for little calf, as in a little cow. And so we have Eglon, the meaty little calf, uh, as in something that you might sacrifice in the temple if you're in ancient Israel. Um, there's a wordplay going on. But on top of that, there's more. Uh, verse 17, we're told um, Israel were sending tribute to Eglon in Moab. Uh, the word for tribute there is actually the word that, that describes a food offering. And so we have Eglon, the meaty little calf, ready for the slaughter, having gorged himself on Israel's offerings that really belong to God. Uh, and it's this situation of oppression, exploitation, that people finally cry out to God. Uh, verse 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Now, was that a cry of repentance? Did they turn back to God? Or were they simply crying out in pain and suffering? We don't know, we're not told. But notice, uh, verse above, it says it took 18 years for them to cry out. Um, those time periods generally get longer as the book goes on. Uh, and I wonder if this points to a forgetfulness of God, uh, only coming to Him as a last resort, only after every other option had failed. Grace City, would we be a people quick to turn to the Lord? But we're told, eventually, these people did cry out, and in response, God, He gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerar, the Benjamite. He is our hero, our hero, Ehud, son of Gerar. We're told a few things about him. First, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. That's interesting. Back in chapter 1, uh, Benjamin was like the most failed tribe of all, the least faithful, the failure tribe. And so here we have an unlikely hero from Benjamin. But we're also told he was left-handed. Now, we've got a few here. Um, but when it says he was left-handed, uh, it's actually not saying that he was a lefty by nature. My daughter, Neve, she's left-handed. That's cool. Uh, that's not Ehud. Uh, it literally says that he was restricted in his right hand, uh, probably through like paralysis, uh, deformity, he couldn't use his right hand. Now, what's again not quite as obvious is that in Hebrew, the name Benjamin literally means son of the right hand, Ben Yamini. And so here we have Ehud from the tribe of the right handers who couldn't use his right hand. And what's more, the name Ehud literally means where is the power? Where's the power for Ehud? There is none. There's a lot of names and descriptions. Uh, hopefully you're starting to see some of the satire going on. Uh, Wordplays, double meanings. But let's quickly get into the guts of the story. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering if anyone would... Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, first part of the story. Uh, Israel, they choose Ehud to go and take this tribute, this food offering, to Eglon over in Moab. 
Uh, and so we're told that uh, Ehud, he goes with a group uh, of others. But Ehud also has another plan. Verse 16, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He makes a sword. It's not a soldier's long sword. Uh, we're told it was small enough to be kind of like strapped to a thigh. It's a dagger. Uh, it's essentially a concealed weapon. Um, it's ancient equivalent of like a pistol with a silencer. Uh, and it's significant that it's on his right thigh because uh, the guards in the palace probably would only check his left. Uh, and so that's maybe how he got it into the palace undetected. Uh, and it seems like at this point, Ehud seems to be working alone, just a lone assassin. Uh, and so with his sword strapped to his thigh, he goes off with this group of others to bring this tribute to Eglon. But he doesn't kill Eglon the first time he meets him. Too many people around. He needs to get him alone. I, I also wonder whether this first meeting with Eglon showed Eglon that Ehud was not a threat. Just a guy with a deformed hand. Maybe that's why he let Ehud come a second time alone. I wonder if that's Ehud's plan. Clever guy. Um, but with this first meeting done, Ehud, he goes away with the group that he came with. But on his way back to Israel, we're told uh, he sent the others away. And then he turned, out, he turned around at a place called the Idols. Uh, he goes back to Eglon alone. Now... Why did he turn around at the idols? Uh, in a moment, we're going to see that Ehud, he comes to Eglon with this seemingly secret message. I wonder if turning around at the idols maybe made Eglon think, oh, he's received some message from the gods at the idols. Almost like saying, hey, I've been to the Apple store and I bought you a present. I didn't tell you I bought it at the Apple store. But it creates an expectation. I wonder if that's what Ehud is doing here. Clever guy. So Ehud, he comes back to Eglon. But this time, verse 19, he says, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. You might be wondering, is Ehud lying? After all, he doesn't have a message at all. He has a sword strapped to his thigh. Uh, Again, here's where we get another word play. Uh, Hebrew, uh, the word for message is actually the same word for thing. And so when he says, I've got a secret message for you, that could equally mean, I've got a hidden thing for you. As in, the sword strapped to my thigh. Um, double meaning. But Eglon, he hears what he wants to hear. He wants a message from the gods. And so he sends his attendants away. And Ehud comes alone. Uh, what we get next is a painfully slow-mo account of Eglon's assassination. We, kinda, we, we get the whole scene with like still frame shots, uh, all the detail. Eg, uh, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and he plunged it into the king's belly... Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in 
over it. Every detail, gruesome slow-mo. Eglon's belly gobbles up the sword. Um, it's gone. Uh, the ESV says, uh, then, the ESV says, the dung came out. We'll come back to the purpose of all these details in a moment, but that's not where the story finishes. Next, Ehud has to mount a cover-up. So he locks the doors, presumably from the inside, uh, otherwise he'd just get caught. Uh, and then he goes off, escaping back to Israel. This time he goes straight past that place called the Idols, because he doesn't want to stop there. There's a bunch of idols. Um, but then uh, the attendants, they come and check on Eglon. Maybe it's been a few hours. They wait a little while. Nothing. Maybe they kind of knock on the door. Nothing. Uh, they call out, no reply. They check the door. It's locked. They start to smell something. They think, ah, maybe Eglon is uh, relieving himself. Um, so they wait. That would be awkward if they walked in while he was on the throne. Um, they, they wait a little longer. Maybe a few hours. They're thinking, it's been a long time. It's been a while. We're told they waited literally until they shook with embarrassment. Surely nobody would take that long. Only then do they get the key, they open the door and they find their Lord dead on the ground. They can't see a murder weapon, it's gone. The assassin is gone. And so we've got a Cluedo who done it. Uh, but we're told Ehud, he was safely back in Israel. And it's only then that Ehud goes public uh, with him as being Israel's deliverer. Uh, last few verses of our kind of chapter, um, we're told he blew the trumpet, he rallied God's people, and then all of them went down and they defeated 10,000 Moabites. Um, if you look in verse 29, it says the Moabites were all vigorous and strong. The word there, vigorous, is actually the word fat. They were fat and strong, uh, just like Eglon. They defeated 10,000 little Eglons, uh, all defeated by Israel, and then we're told they enjoyed 80 years of peace. But let's come back to our question. Why? Why all the details? Why the satire? Uh, remember, the purpose of a satire is to expose something, um, often through ridicule. So what's being exposed here? Uh, clearly, what's being exposed and ridiculed is Eglon. So what's the point? Even though Eglon seemed so fierce and oppressive, he was nothing more than a fat little calf slaughtered by a man from a tribe of right-handers who couldn't use his right hand. A man with seemingly no power. And if such a fierce king could be so shamed and killed by the most unlikely of heroes, what does that tell you about the enemies of God's people? They're nothing. They are nothing. They are exposed. Um, I think it's important that Ehud is the first real story in the book of Judges because it shows us that whatever enemies God's people will face, none of them are a challenge for God. They're not a problem for him. 
And they shouldn't cause God's people to doubt that he can deliver them. Uh, And by so ridiculing, so mocking Eglon, this passage exposes God's enemies as being laughable. Um, I think Psalm 2 gives us a little insight into this dynamic. Uh, Psalm 2 says, The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Kings like Eglon. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Uh, God's laughter here is not a making light of evil, as if evil were funny. Have a listen to what commentator Barry Webb says about God's laughter here. It is not that God is indifferent to the evil such people do or the suffering they inflict. Otherwise, he would not judge them as the psalm, Psalm 2, goes on to say he will. Rather, it is because he knows that their claims to be able to defy him with impunity are absurd because they are no match for his anointed. This is the point of the satire in the story of Ehud. It exposes, reveals Eglon's power as nothing in comparison to the might of God. Uh, Over in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul says that that is in fact what Jesus, the Anointed One, has done to all the forces of evil and darkness. Uh, Colossians 2.15 says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities. There it's talking about forces of evil. Uh, And it says, He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Jesus has shamed evil, exposing the forces of evil for what they are. They are nothing compared to the triumph of God. How does this change how you see the world? Well, it means you can't be a dualist. Um, In a dualist worldview, um, good and evil are almost kind of two equally matched forces, uh, fighting almost like arm wrestlers locked in battle, um, like a yin and a yang, two equal opposite forces. Uh, You get a Christian version as well, which says that like God and Satan, they each lead kingdoms that are equal and opposite, one good, one evil. Uh, You see that come out when people talk about their lives as if uh, God and Satan were tussling for control. And sometimes God's in control in my life. Sometimes Satan is. The Bible says no. There is no contest. They are not equal. Uh, It says the one sitting in heaven laughs. Satan's kingdom is nothing more than a fat little calf ready for the slaughter. Um, Can you see the aim of this passage? The aim is that God would be so big to us bigger than any of our enemies. The aim is that we would be confident in our God, never doubting his ability to defeat the Eglons of this world. Um, Barry Webb, he goes one step further. He invites us to join in this laughter of heaven. He says, By its humour, the Ehud story invites us to see the tyrants of this world as God sees them and to join in the laughter of heaven. This is not a whistling in the dark, it is holy laughter. And perhaps the only thing that can keep us sane in our darkest days. Let's receive it thankfully, 
and rejoice that however overwhelming evil may sometimes seem, we have something to laugh about. Now, he's not saying that we should laugh or make light of evil, mock it. Uh, New Testament tells us to be watchful and alert because Satan is like a lion roaming around. But I think what Barry's saying here is that we should be bold and confident in our God, like a Romans 8 kind of confidence. If God is for us, who could be against us? Eglon? Satan? Death? No. Grace City, this world, our lives, are full of enemies and troubles. Uh, Some of them may have even been strengthened by God, like he did for Eglon. Uh, And those enemies might take many forms. Uh, The Apostle Paul talks about troubles, distress, persecution, poverty, uh, danger, and even death. But in Jesus, God has so shamed and exposed them for what they are dead kings on a bathroom floor. And so let us say, if God is for us, who could be against us? But how? How does God do all of this? Um, Here's where I want to finish by uh, reflecting on God's salvation and in particular God's saviour. Throughout the book of Judges, we get this repetition of salvation and a saviour. It comes again and again. It's there in our passage, verse 9. The Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. Uh, Verse 31, after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. It's even there in verse 15 with Ehud. When it calls him a deliverer, that word is literally saviour. But if that's the case, there's also a few unsettling elements about Ehud's salvation, aren't there? Um, Apart from being a somewhat brutal assassination, there's this kind of undertone of deception, deceit. Think about it. Ehud was a lone assassin who didn't seem to tell anyone about his plan. Uh, He concealed his mission. He concealed his weapon. He hid it under his clothes. Um, He used a deceptive phrase like secret message. He turned back at the idols, maybe to think, make Eglon think something that wasn't entirely the case. He covered up his assassination. He locked the doors. Here's one. Could it be that Ehud actually pushed the sword in to hide the murder weapon and then escape? Um, If Ehud's deception makes you uncomfortable, I think that's actually part of the point of the story. Um, As we work through the book of Judges, what we're going to see time and time again is that God continues to raise up judges who are unconventional, flawed, and sometimes downright ungodly. And so time and time again, we're left longing, waiting for a better judge, one who wouldn't deceive and assassinate, one who would bring truth and life. Uh, This longing for a better judge is part of the point of the book. But I think Ehud actually gives us a little hint of what this true judge might look like. Uh, The thing about Ehud is that he was unexpected, weak. From the tribe of Benjamin, the weakest, least impressive tribe, 
And the weakest thing about Ehud was his hand. Tribe of the right-handers couldn't use it. And yet his greatest weakness would become the means of his victory. Let me show you something. Uh, There are four references to the word hand throughout this story. Um, I think they tell a story within the story. The first reference is when it says uh, Ehud uh, was restricted in his right hand, a symbol, a mark of his weakness. Second reference is when it says that he took his left hand to fatally wound God's enemy. The third is when Ehud rallies God's people in verse 28 and he says, Today God has given your enemies into your hands. And then the last one uh, comes right at the end and it says, Moab, God's enemy, was subdued under the hand of Israel. Uh, Ehud's greatest weakness, his hand, became the means, the symbol of his victory, subdued under the hand. Uh, I think all of it's a small echo of the one great story uh, of Jesus Christ, the one who came not with power, but with weakness, one who, like Ehud, would hear the question, where is the power? Um, One, we might say, who came as the true left-hander, unexpected. Satan never saw it coming. Satan tried to take him down, assassinate him on the cross, and the nails pierced his hands, the, the spear would pierce his side, and yet blood and water would f- flow freely. And Satan never realized that the cross, the cross would become the greatest satire the world had ever seen. The ultimate place where expectations are flipped, uh, where the victim would become the victor. Uh, the ultimate double meaning of death and life, the ultimate irony where Satan's triumph would become his downfall. That's the place where Jesus' greatest shame would become his greatest victory. Um, He experienced a violence worse than Eglon, a greater shame, and yet he died not as a fat little calf, but as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, The one whose death brings true laughter, not a dark laugh of mockery, but a true, a pure laugh of joy. Um, Jesus promises us, Luke 6.21, that those who weep will laugh. Uh, Grace City, there are lots of reasons why Jesus died. One of them is that so you could laugh. Um, I've been reading Lord of the Rings. Uh, I might just read a little section. I think it captures the delight of laughter. Uh, it comes after Frodo and Sam, they've destroyed the ring, Sauron is defeated. And it's when Gandalf comes to meet Sam. It won't come up on the screen, I'll just read it. With that, Gandalf stood before Sam, robed in white, his beard now gleaming like pure snow in the twinkling of the leafy sunlight. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? He said. Sam lay back, stared with an open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to become untrue? What's happened to the world? 
a great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled up and laughing he sprang from his bed. How do I feel, he cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, he waved his, his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. Grace City, blessed are those who weep because they will laugh in the kingdom of God. But just before I pray, uh, it's worth saying that the story of Ehud, it doesn't just teach us something about Jesus. It teaches us something about us. Uh, our greatest achievements, our greatest attributes, are just laughable before God. And yet, like, how often do we just spend our time building up our own little kingdoms, gobbling up the praise that belongs to God, and we forget His mercy, His grace, that He chooses the weak. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. He chose, uh, he chose Ehud, the shame egg one. He chose Jesus to shame the forces of evil. So come to Jesus. Let Him be your true judge, your true saviour. Uh, as the old hymn says, nothing in my hand. I bring simply to your cross, I cling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if you are for us, then who could be against us? God, you are greater, you are higher than anything else in all creation. You are greater than our deepest fears, all our darkest enemies. And you have secured the victory through our great judge and saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray that we will never forget your mercy. And Father, we long for the day when we will laugh with you. Amen.